Words have meanings. Words can have very powerful meanings. And then there are words that maybe don't mean much at all. Listen to a list of words here and think about their meanings. Compassion. Truth. Penalty. Injustice. Peace. Bondage. Forgiveness. Perfect. Possession. Love. Honesty. And grace. The word grace, according to the word of God, is a very powerful and wonderful and glorious word to think upon. When you read through the pages of Scripture and you read of the grace of God upon His people, it is glorious. And this morning, we draw our attention to that word grace. The word grace humbles us, it amazes us, and the more that we understand it, uh, we come to know it's a life-changing word And as we look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 this morning, the scriptural truth we see is that the grace of God saves his people and sets them free to live for the glory of God. Look with me at verse 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you the word of God the apostle Paul makes a very clear connection between verses 1 and 10 and 11 through 15 as he tells the body of Christ as he tells Titus to tell the uh, body of Christ to walk and to live in holiness and he mentioned the older and the younger men and women and the slaves within the church what we see is something that Paul does in his letters in the New Testament he always partners theology with behavior and sometimes he teaches theology the doctrines of God and he partners it with behavior as a result of those things or sometimes as in Titus here, he speaks of the behavior of holy living, and now he gives us the understanding of the doctrine of God. If you look at verse 10, where we ended last week, it says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And so what he does is he summarizes this doctrine. He teaches us this doctrine in this letter, summing, up, summing it up in this powerful word, Grace, the grace of God has appeared. And so look at verse 11. And the first point is that the grace, that God's grace saves his people from the judgment for sin. It says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He just told Titus to teach the people in the church to be living holy lives, to be self-controlled, to have pure lives, 
And he says, for the grace of God has appeared. This word grace, charis, it means grace that uh, it's a word that summarizes the saving act of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I put three slides up here trying to define this as best as possible. But the first one is God's grace is his undeserved favor towards sinful, wicked, unworthy people by redeeming them from death through Jesus Christ. A second way to say this as you look at the definition of this word grace is that God's merciful kindness by which he exerts his holy influence upon souls. Number one, by turning them to Christ. Number two, keeping them in the faith by strengthening and increasing them in faith, knowledge, and affection. And number three, kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues, just as we read in verses 1 through 10 last week. But a third summary statement would be this, that grace is the free gift of a merciful God to his people through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To think of you receiving something that you do not deserve is a picture of God's grace upon his people. And therefore, when I think of the word grace, I think of a cross. I think of the symbol of the cross because it's at the cross where we find the grace of God upon God's people for salvation. Go and look at verse 11 here. For the grace of God has appeared This speaks of the incarnation, Jesus Christ's first coming. There's 126 days until Christmas, for those of you who are planning. Some of you are like, we haven't even started school. But here's the thing. We don't wait for Christmas to celebrate Christ's first advent. When he says the grace of God has appeared, this has already happened as God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born in the manger and to live in this world a perfect, sinless life. Look at Luke chapter 2. A man named Simeon, Luke chapter 2, says this when he sees Christ the babe in the temple. And it says in verse 26, Actually, I'll read in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon set his eyes on the babe Jesus Christ. And he knew from the Holy Spirit and from the prophecy and God's word that this Christ, Jesus, would be the salvation for God's people. And he makes that wondrous statement. 
And so when we see Titus chapter 2 and the grace of God has appeared, we look to the birth of Christ. We look to the life of Christ in which he never sinned. We look to the death of Christ on the cross in which he shed his blood to take away the sins of his people. And we look to the empty tomb that Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place for our sins rose from death to life and he's ascended to heaven where he is ruling and reigning. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of the power of God, verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Salvation has appeared. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it says, God has appeared, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Bringing salvation. And we must ask the obvious question, when it says to bring salvation, to be saved from what? When you really think about that for a minute, oh, we praise Jesus for salvation, but what is it? that we have been saved from. And what we have been saved from as God's people by the grace of God is the judgment and the penalty of death. And many people that would come to this point may ask the question before they have the grace of God upon them is, well, what have I done? Why should I be judged? Why should I receive a penalty of death? Well, Scripture tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's deeper than that. Did you hear the words you were singing? God is holy. That he's holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's sinless. And a holy God has given you life. And the scriptures tell us that all have sinned. We've sinned against a holy holy God. And therefore, in this sense, you've broken God's law. If you break a law here or make a, commit a crime and it's on camera here and you go before the courts and the judge that you see on there is like, oh good, he's a good judge. He's a just judge. But if you broke the law and you stand before a just judge and he said, look it, we've got it on camera. You did this. What should the just judge do to you? What? He should find you what? Guilty, Guilty, right? You're like, I ran that stoplight in that town and I hope that they didn't get me on camera and they pardon me. No, if you break the law, a just judge should find you guilty and what follows the guilty uh, verdict is what? A sentencing. He should sentence you to whatever that crime that you committed or that law that you broke receives. And when we speak of sin, Scripture 
teaches us. It's this missing the mark of holiness. It's like this picture of a target and a bullseye. We're nowhere even close to that. And not only have we sinned against God, but Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5 and in the book of 1 Corinthians that we have been born with a sin nature passed down from Adam. So not only is it, oh, I broke this law and I broke that law and I lied and I broke the Ten Commandments. No, you were born a sinner passed down from Adam to today. And therefore, you stand before the Lord guilty. That's why when a person receives the grace of God and is justified before God the Father, he sees his child that he's adopted, forgiven, and not guilty because he sees the righteousness of Christ. But we must know and understand, if we're going to grow in our understanding of God's grace upon us for salvation, we must know and understand that we deserve hell, that we deserve God's wrath. God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. No matter how many great things you've done or said or thought in this world, God owes us nothing because every one of us, fallen in sin, having a sin nature, have broken God's law and therefore are guilty before a holy God. And for the believer, we take joy in passages like what we're studying today in Romans 6.23, which says, the wages of sin is what, church? death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in who? Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the judge finds you guilty. And let's say the sentence there, the punishment is that you must pay $150,000 today. You start calling up all your friends, all your family. People start sending money your way. You pull out your checkbook. You write $150,000 and you give it to the clerk. And the clerk says, no, you don't need to do this because the judge just paid it for you. I don't deserve that. Church, this is the picture for God's people and what Christ has done to save you. You deserve death and hell. And Jesus Christ died in your place and bore your sins and the wrath of the Father. And he shed his blood so you could be set free from slavery to sin and be set free to live by the grace of God. And so the penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ at the cross and where we see his grace in abundance. The scripture is clear that those who are saved will repent of their sins and they will believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says he will not turn them away. But we also know there are many, many people who have and will die in their sins and spend eternity in hell under the wrath of God forever and ever. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 4 through 6 
So it connects with verse 11 of what we're looking in Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. I'll read verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now when you look at that and you go back to Titus in verse 11, <clears throat> We see, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Do not be worried when you read this. There is no struggle when it says, bringing salvation for all people. Scripture is not contradicting itself. Scripture is clear that few will be saved, that many will die in their sins, this is not a verse which some use to point to universal salvation that everyone eventually will be saved. Even if they go to hell or wrath of God for a period of time, they will be saved. That is not scripture. That is not truth. That is lies of the enemy. And therefore, when it says bringing salvation for all people, we must look to see what does this mean. Let me ask you this, church. Does Scripture say that everyone will go to heaven? Many will die in their sins and go to hell. We also must understand that when we look at God's grace through His Son Jesus and His blood shed, the atonement, it is sufficient to save all. You must understand that. Christ's blood shed is sufficient to save everyone. Because he was the perfect and only sacrifice, being God and man, never sinning, and therefore being the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we know that because there are people who die in their sins, his atonement, the blood of Christ, is applied only to his church, only to his people. The titles that we read in Scripture, in the New Testament, the saints of God, the elect, the church, the predestined, do not be afraid of those names. Those are the names of God's people. And therefore, if Christ's atonement is applied to everyone, then everyone is saved. Am I making it clear? Christ's blood and his atonement is applied only to his people who believe in him in faith and are saved by the grace of God. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Romans chapter 10 verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you understand why we preach the gospel to the ends of the earth? Even though there will be many who reject Christ, many who will never believe, many who will never believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're commanded to preach the gospel to all because we do not know who those will be saved. And therefore, we're only obedient to God and we preach the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. John 8, 24 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Church, these are very comforting passages of Scripture to know the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so God saves his people, not because we deserve anything, not because we've done anything. This is God's grace. It's undeserved, and it's poured out because God is good. He's compassionate. He is loving. He is merciful. And that is a picture of God's grace upon his people. But I want us to look at verse 12 in Titus, and the second point is God's grace breaks the bonds of slavery to sin. This week, as I was doing some research and looking about um, different errors and times and places of slavery, one of the things that I saw and my attention was drawn to was pictures in museums of chains and shackles. Horrendous things. People being shackled around their feet so they could shuffle and get along, but they couldn't run, they couldn't kick. Those that had shackles around their wrists and to see pictures of slaves who had scars around their wrists and their ankles from these things. But also it was very sad to see pictures, drawings of people that had chains around their necks and those chains being brought through the chains of their feet, and therefore if a master was upset the slave, he could just crank the chain down, and the person is bent over, hobbling around, being forced to do that type of work. And when I thought of that, and I read of that, I said, that is a picture of the person who is a slave to sin, being shackled, being held down, being tortured in that sense, and being controlled by sin and sin nature. That is the picture of all who are born into this world. Therefore, verse 12, the second point is God's grace breaks the bonds of slavery to sin. Verse 12, after he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, it teaches us or training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. Nothing new. We already saw this in chapter 1. We saw this at the beginning of chapter 2. Upright and godly lives in this present age. God calls his people to holy living. And when we understand that it's only by the grace of God who sets us free in Christ to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can then, with assurance in God, walk in that manner. No perfection yet. It's not until the day that you're with the Lord and glorified, but to know that he calls us to that and that we can live and walk in that way by the power of the Holy Spirit is very encouraging for the believer living in this world today. Look back at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul calls himself what? He says, Paul, a what? A servant of God. Now, if you have not read some of other Paul's letters, when he points out being a servant of God, in other places he writes that he was in the past not a servant of God. He actually uses the word slave. and was like, I was a slave to sin, but now I'm a slave of God. Again, many people don't like 
that. And so we look for versions of the Bible that will say servant instead of slave. I don't want to put slave on there. But you need to understand the weight of slavery to sin. It's like those shackles and those chains being controlled and all you ever want to do is wickedness. As God looked down on the earth in Genesis chapter 6 before he flooded the earth and he said all that God saw the people doing was wickedness. That's all they did. That's a picture of our life before the grace of God. And so now Paul writes, a servant of God. There's joy when he writes that because he was a slave to sin and he knows that he was and he was set free to be a servant of God only by God's grace. And God's grace not only saves us but continues to teach us in how to live righteously that God's grace helps us learn to deny sin, to become more self-controlled. But I believe one of the greater struggles for the believer is that you think the chains are still there. Some of you battle daily with the temptation to sin and the battle of sin, thinking that you're still controlled by sin. But if you're a believer and receive the grace of God, the chains and the control of sin has been broken in Christ. Therefore, we're not perfect. We still struggle. We still battle. We looked at this last week in a walk and a call to holiness. That one day, yes, perfected in our soul and a perfected body, and there will be no more sin, no more struggle. But while we walk this earth, there is a battle. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, a wonderful text in which the Apostle Paul speaks about life before Christ and life after Christ. If you're not a follower of Christ, this addresses you. If you are a follower of Christ, this addresses you. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Look at all the differences between the past and present tense. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church of Ephesus. And he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I love this. But God. Every time I read this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, if, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Man, the whole church should say amen if you're a follower of Christ. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells the church, don't be living like the past because you're a new creature. You're a new creation. You've been given new life. So don't keep going back to the old life that you once were. There's been a transformation and you have a new heart and a new life. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Therefore, church, it's important that you read the Word of God 
so that you understand sound doctrine, as Paul writes to Titus, so that you would practice sound doctrine daily in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, to live lives of holiness. And I wonder if any of you in here are struggling with sin and wondering, is God's grace sufficient to cover all my sins? Well, you need to know that God's grace is sufficient. And as a believer, sin has no control over you. There's a difference, as Scripture teaches us, before your, your life before Christ, all you ever did was sin, habitually sinned. The world argues, no, we're, we're moral people, we do some good things. Reflect back in your life before Christ. New life in Christ, being sanctified daily, Sin, no control over you. You still battle with sin, but day by day, Christ makes you more and more like him. Read the word of God that you would be encouraged in your walk to follow Christ daily. It says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Turn to Romans chapter 6. But Paul's telling Titus there, this is the conscious, purposeful action of saying no to sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Again, he's writing to believers, to you. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Grace of Jesus Christ. And so as we read there, Training us to renounce ungodliness this is back in verse 12. And worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That living, self controlled, upright, godly lives is the result of what God is doing in you, sanctifying you to making you more like Christ. I don't know about you, but I enjoy drinking coffee. But good coffee. Um, and not for just the habitual, I need the caffeine. I don't know why, I, I like the taste of coffee. But I have a bunch of uh, white t-shirts that I'll just put on, wear around the house. And uh, they have some stains on it. I don't know, whatever, the dog running by, kids coming over, you're just sometimes being, and... and and I hate it. Scoffee stains on them. I'm like, ah. And as I was putting one on this week and I saw that, I was like, wow. The stain of sin, of life of a person, 
by the grace of God, is removed. It's like to take that white shirt and throw it in the bleach and maybe it gets the stain out. But I mean, this is a picture of Christ removing the sin from his people's life that is like the whitest of the white, the purest of the pure, that it's the most glorious picture of no more sin stain in your life. Because if you're a follower of Christ today, you'll agree with me that we still battle with sin. There's still a stain there. Even though we've been forgiven in Christ by his grace and the bloodshed, there's still this problem with sin that happens. But yet the great promises of scripture is it will be removed completely one day for all who are in Christ. And the third point is that God's grace removes us removes from us the stain of sin. Look at verse 13. As we're living this life upright and godly in this present age, it says in verse 13, waiting for our blessed what? Hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you hoping and waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Do you have this angst in you? Do you have this desire in you saying, Jesus, come back today. Come back in the clouds of glory that we would be with you and that the stain of sin would be removed completely. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ and so as we saw the grace of God appeared at the incarnation, the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, that God's glory will appear at Christ's return. Therefore, when we take communion, the Lord's Supper together, we reflect on the cross. We remember what Christ has done for us. But we also look to the future. The day when we will be with the Lord Jesus forever in which he says, I'm not going to take this anymore until that day in the future. And so we have much hope. Don't know if you look at the news much or if your family or you are battling sickness or disease or you've lost a loved one recently. Whatever struggle you find yourself in to know that your hope is in Christ in that one day, no more stain of sin and a new glorified body. Amen. Brought together before the throne of Christ in which we will declare as we were singing this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Church, know that the word of God promises Christ will return. Jesus said that he will return and God always fulfills his promises as we were reading earlier in Titus last week, as we were looking to his word. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That doesn't mean that we're going to become God's but we will be perfected in holiness as he is. We will have a glorified body like Christ does. And so church, who is our blessed hope in verse 13? Who is it? Jesus. Jesus Christ is your blessed hope. 
Again, we are not wishing that one day Christ will return. We are assured that this great glorious event will happen. And some of you, if Christ tarries longer, will die, and you, in your faith in Christ, you will go to be with him. And your soul will be perfected. And you will wait for the day that your glorified body would be rejoined with a glorified soul. And so God has promised because he is our great God and Savior. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And lastly, in verse 14 of Titus 2, God's grace to redeem you cost him. There was a cost which God paid to redeem you to make you his own. And it says in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The cost is that Jesus Christ had to die. The cost is that Jesus Christ would shed his blood. The cost included that Jesus Christ would be born fully man and to live in this world and never sin. The cost was Jesus giving his life, receiving the wrath of God the Father and pouring out his blood as a ransom to redeem his people from their sin. The redemption is from all lawlessness, all the fleshly lusts of our hearts before Christ saves us. And I was reading in Ezekiel in the Old Testament prophet, verse chapter 37, they shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be, the, be my people and I will be their God. It says that, verse 14, Titus 2, that he will purify for himself a people for his own possession. If you are a part of Christ's church and have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you belong to Christ. You are his possession. He bought you. He purchased you with his blood. Satan no longer rules over you. The control of sin is gone. Sin does not own you or control you. Grace has released you as an adopted child of God to serve the Lord and to be zealous for good works. Christians, that's what we are to do, to be zealous for good works. 
And we must pray that God's grace would move upon our lives and make our works His good works. And it's so opposite from what we read in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, in which it spoke of the Cretans and it said in Titus 1, 16, they profess to know God but deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's not only a picture of the Cretans, but it's a picture of all who are far off from God. And you once were that way, church, but now you've been purified by Christ, a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And simply verse 15 is what we end with here. It's this transition verse into the next part. Paul says to Titus, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Church, declare these truths. Declare the gospel to the ends of the earth so that God would continue to call his people to himself, that they would see the cross of Christ, that they would see the grace of God, that they would be set free from slavery to sin and they would be saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. We know the words to the song that we sing occasionally very well. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Church, that is the work of grace that God does upon your life to make you his own. Father, we are amazed and astounded that you would love us, that you would pour out your grace upon us, that you would shower us with your mercy that you would forgive us of our sins, our trespasses against you, and that you would forget them by the blood of Christ. Jesus, all I know to say right now is thank you. Thank you that you would give yourself for me. Thank you that you would give yourself for your church that you would do a work that only you can do because you love us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, and your compassion upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.